0: Welcome to PW's special podcast on the Apple ebook price fixing decision. I'm Calvin Reed, senior news editor at Publishers Weekly, and I'm going to be talking to Andrew Albanese. Uh, you're a senior writer. I, I, I have to admit, Andy, I get your title mixed up.
1: <laughs> you got it right this time, Callum. <laughs> right, I did get it right.
0: Excellent. Uh, uh, Andy has been, uh, as high, but, but Andy has really been covering uh, the Apple trial, really, since the legal issues were first fleshed out. He is also the author of The Battle Over 999, How Apple and the Big Sick Publishers Changed the Book Business Overnight, a, a PW and e eBook original that, uh, as I understand it, and appropriately so, shot to the tops of the um, bestseller list.
1: Yeah, go figure. It, it did wind up near the top of the bestseller list briefly. Um, and we should say now at the top of this that the book's going to be fitted with an update that's going dis- to discuss the verdict and what comes next and other developments in the ebook market. And that'll be available on Monday, uh, which I believe is July 22nd, right? <laughs> Okay, yes.
0: This book, obviously, the book is, um, uh, it's, it's not necessarily tied to the decision, but it, uh, the book, as well as this decision, uh, has an awful lot to say about how publishing it will be conducted in the future, uh, uh, and certainly how consumers will purchase their ebooks. We both covered the trial. Um, Apple received a major blow uh, from uh, Judge Denise Coste, uh, really losing on pretty much. Every point um, you want to lay out the, um, the, the, the judge's decision Andy
1: yes yeah, you know so you know you and I were both in the courtroom, and you know as we discussed ad nauseum in the offices uh, really there's no surprise here, uh, not even with the the speedy verdict as Judge Coded had said from the outset that she had structured the trial so that she could deliver a quick verdict, and that's something that both parties had said they wanted uh, and, and quick verdict indeed she did deliver just 20 days after the conclusion of the trial so you know on NPR last night. I was talking with Amy Eddings and she asked me this simple question: Why did Apple lose? Well, you know, simply put, you know, as I'd reported in some of my earlier coverage, Apple's only real shot at winning this was going to be to persuade the court that the case before them was not a per se violation of the Sherman Act. Now, a per se violation essentially means that the facts of the case establish conduct that is so clearly outside the law that the court condemns it without regard to any motivating factors. For example, a motivating factor might be. Amazon's below-cost pricing in order to achieve dominance over the ebook market, but Apple failed to make this case. And in her decision, uh, you know, Co actually said that even if the case was not viewed as a per se violation, she believed Apple still would have lost. Uh, and that's kind of a testament to the mountain of evidence that Ben collected. But the fact that she didn't have to go there, didn't have to entertain any deeper analysis of the ebook business and why the publishers and Apple did what they did, meant that in the end, this decision wasn't even close.
0: Could you outline the government 's case a little bit, and I mean one of the things we both talked about was the enormous amount of evidence the government had, uh, but but the, maybe you can talk a little bit about
1: uh, what was their case against Apple? Sure now, I you know very simply um, the government 's case against Apple was that uh, the five publishers in Apple gathered together in an effort to restrain uh, retail pricing power, in other words, they wanted to eliminate amazon 's ability to charge nine hundred ninety nine for ebooks. Yeah. Um, and now. You and I were both in the court. They gathered a ton of evidence to back up their case, and some people would say that their case was a mile wide and an inch deep. That you know, if you if you went a little deeper into their case, that you know, kind of unraveled a little bit. But there was just the volume of evidence was great, and they also had a number of teams of attorneys that were working on this. They had states' attorneys, they had the federal investigators that were that took over and led the investigation, and they had uh, you know uh, consumer class action that was now involved here too. In the end, they gathered millions of pages. Of documentary evidence to support their position, uh, that the publishers were working together in this effort to move Amazon off 999 along with uh, direct testimony from over forty principals, I believe, as well as expert witnesses. Um, so in the end, they had a significantly deep case, as the DOJ often does, they don't play.
0: Yeah. Adding to the landscape here, the publishers had already settled. I mean, part, of, the re- and, I mean, part of, of my take on this trial has been, in fact, that, well, the publishers settle. And, and some people sort of, you know, I think uh, say, well, the, the government is you know, assuming that since the publishers settled, then there must, be, uh, you know, there must be wrongdoing. But I would assume that part of the reasons the publishers settled was the enormous amount of evidence uh, that the government was able to put together on, just on the issue of collusion.
1: Well, I think that the publishers were mostly motivated. I think all of them admitted no wrongdoing, and all of them yes. maintained of their innocence and still maintain their innocence to this day. I think probably the major motivating factor for each of these publishers, obviously, was cost. It was right. going to cost a lot to defend this. And in the end, they still had to spend that money to defend this case, because even though they settled, they still had to testify in yeah. Apple's trial. So that's a lot of legal costs right there. But also, if they had lost, as John Sargent had actually noted, noted in one point about Macmillan's settlement— their potential liability was greater than, you know, the, the company's worth. Um, they were facing a, a potentially huge liability. Um, so it wasn't something in the end that any of the publishers wanted to risk, which was actually going to trial and losing and having to pay a, a heck of a lot more and perhaps more pain than they ended up settling for. Okay.
0: Well, talk a little bit about Apple's defenses. I think they had three main defenses uh, against the government case, and um, according to the judge, she essentially ruled against all of them.
1: Yeah, pretty much. You know, throughout my reporting, I'd advise trial watchers to kind of pay attention to Apple's three main lines of defense, rather than trying to parse what each witness was going to say and you know how those statements were going to play. You know, among the major media, there was a lot of speculation about witness statements and whether that auger for innocence or guilt, but that was really not the way to watch the trial, and it really wasn't the way Apple was going to win. You know, to win, as you note, Apple was going to need to convince the judge that at least one of its three defenses was airtight, and in the end, it did. It lost. back on all three counts, so the first offense was that Apple argued there was no conspiracy to raise prices, and that you know if there was a conspiracy and prices did go up, it was the publishers who did all the lifting. Uh, Coat was thoroughly judge Cote I should say was thoroughly unmoved by this argument. Uh, yes, the conspiracy required the participation of the publishers, and yes, the publishers wanted to change amazon 's pricing policies, but that does not erase apple 's own intentions to uh, avoid pro- price competition with Amazon. Cote noted. Uh, In fact, she said that the record was equivocal on whether Apple itself wanted higher prices, but unequivocal that Apple actually embraced higher prices in getting this deal done know, Apple's second line of defense was that Amazon and the other retailers actually embraced the agency model—that hey, this isn't a bad deal for us at all—and that that was evidenced by their adoption of agency deals that were nearly identical to Apple's mm-hmm. contracts, that even included most-favored-nations clauses or the price parity clauses, it's also known. Now, this was always a long shot. I saw, and Co also soundly rejected that argument as well. Amazon, from all the evidence that was gathered, clearly had no interest in going to an agency model, and in the end, it did not relinquish its control over retail pricing easily, the records show. And finally, Apple sought to show that the e-book market suffered no ill effects from this deal. And in fact, the agreements were pro-competitive. Again, Coat was completely unmoved by this argument. As she did in her approval of the initial three settlements with publishers uh, back in April of 2012, she stressed that even if Amazon was foreclosing competition through low pricing, that would not justify the kind of collusion that she saw here. The question in the Apple case, she said, was always a narrow one. Whether Apple facilitated and encouraged an illegal Plan to restrain retail pricing. She found the answer clearly from the evidence she gathered was yes.
0: Well, yes, I mean that that seemed to be the case all through her decision. Um, I was actually particular on one of the days that I uh, was covering the trial when uh, when Amazon's Grandinetti was on the stand, just speaking to. Uh, it's second Apple's second defense uh, that you know that other retailers embraced it. Certainly, Amazon fought it as you said tooth and nail. In fact, I think Grandinetti's testimony, uh, when asked if, if uh, uh, agency and the MFN uh, was a reasonable business practice, uh, uh, I think his testimony was that um, uh, we were presented with an ultimatum. Under the circumstances, it was pretty difficult to decide what's reasonable.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, basically, you know, Apple tried to portray Amazon's move to agency as a rational reaction to the business environment. That if they didn't move to agency, they were going to lose access to all of these books. But I think in the end, uh, Judge Koch did listen to Amazon's testimony and did decide that indeed they were presented with an ultimatum and an ultimatum that could not have happened without. All of the publishers in Apple was was uh, been collectively to them, yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: So you know, let's why don't we just go backwards in time just a little bit, and uh, maybe you can describe the ebook market in 2009 as as ebooks are finally starting to make a dent uh, in the marketplace, and the publishers are looking at uh, the rise of Amazon and Amazon um, windowing and other elements to come out of this kind of this new phase in publishing.
1: Yeah, well, certainly Amazon in 2009 was was dominant. By 2009, it was selling nine out of every 10 ebooks, But then again, in late 2007, it had pretty much built this e-book market. Yeah. Uh, there, by, by 2009, you had some new entries into the field. There was the Barnes & Noble Nook and the Kobo e-reader, but none of them had been able to gain any traction. Uh, Amazon was thoroughly dominating the market that it had literally uh, built from scratch as publishers. Yeah. Uh, John Sargent specifically had admitted. Now, two things. Really popped for me in covering this case. And you know, the first is that I think it's important to say that no one ever put a gun to a publisher's head here and said you have to sell your ebooks through Amazon. You know, if publishers did in fact believe that Amazon's $9.99 price was destroying their business, they could have ended those contracts. You know, each individually could have gone on their own way and decided not to sell ebooks through Amazon. Key word
0: here: Individually.
1: Yes, individually. Yeah. <laughs> could have tried to do this on their own. But of course, you know, ebooks were surging in popularity and Amazon was a big account, and no publisher. Was going to walk away from what Amazon represented, which was about you know, 10% of their total sales, according to some documents at the time. Um, and also, publishers had all signed these deals with Amazon. They had set them up in many cases. As, Am- as Amazon officials had testified, in some cases, they merely accepted the ebook terms that publishers had offered them. So, by setting up their ebook businesses on a wholesale model from the start, uh, publishers actually enabled Amazon to sell books at $9.99 prices. You know, and even when those $9.99 prices became a problem they continued to sell eBooks to them because they were afraid of Amazon's retaliation. Now I'm not going to criticize publishers for doing that because you know, hindsight is 2020, but if publishers, I think I'm going to say this at least, if they had been more focused in 2009 or even in 2007, uh, on what might happen if this ebook stuff really took off, uh, then we might've avoided this all. Instead, publishers initially their, their main ebook experience with, was with Google and suing them to stop the scanning of out of print yeah. books. Uh, and, you know, the giant labyrinthine settlement they had put together, you know, in their negotiations, Amazon noted that publishers were more concerned uh, with things like DRM and security when it came to the launch of the Kindle. You know, and again, that's understandable because it was kind of the Wild West out there in some ways. And you can't necessarily fault them for being concerned about these issues. But, you know, if they had been a little bit more wary of what was going to happen if ebooks succeeded, they might have been able to, you know, head off some of the trouble that was in their future. Which brings us to windowing.
0: Yes. Uh, you know, and this is a lo- major point for Apple. They they kept returning to windowing as something that they absolutely had to avoid, uh, that they thought would would destroy
1: their ability to to function in the ebook marketplace in In essence, windowing was really a, a major major part of the case here in his closing argument, Oren Snyder suggested that the crux of the government 's conspiracy was foundationally wrong that apple's proposed uh, its agency proposal wasn 't about raising prices it was about making ebooks available because yeah. publishers had uh, they 'd already begun windowing bestsellers. you know for example uh. From HarperCollins, I think Sarah Palin's book Going Rogue was an example at the time. Uh, you know that book was not available in a Kindle edition, so the status quo was not nine ninety nine. Snyder insisted the status quo was with, with the withholding of new releases. Now, in the end, Cote, Judge Cote did not buy that at all. She noted that the publishers themselves had acknowledged that windowing was not a sustainable tactic, that it was going to hurt them in the long run, and that only thirty seven books total were windowed in that period. Uh, Snyder said that you know. Doesn't matter if there was only thirty-seven. If it was the right thirty-seven books, yeah. nevertheless, Coat did not buy that. That windowing was uh, the status quo of the ebook business.
0: So there, we have an ebook market that Amazon is dominating. Uh, that uh, publishers are growing more and more frustrated with uh, nine ninety-nine. I think at one time, one one uh, point during the trial, the testimony, of one of the C- CEOs, I believe it was. Uh, uh, David Young uh, said these were the crown jewels. Uh, you know, they, didn't, they don't believe they can sell a book for more than 9 dollars um, What did Apple's platform offer them?
1: In a word, Apple offered them protection. You know the publishers <laughs> clearly wanted to move Amazon, but they feared being retaliated against. Um, so what Apple offered was a chance for the publishers to stand united and to force Amazon onto a new model. Now, is this a conspiracy or was this just an opportunity that Apple presented? That really is the the main question here. So the DOJ effectively made its case that this was a conspiracy to raise ebook prices. Ryan said, you know, the obvious and undisputed goal of publishing and Apple working together was to restrain retail price competition uh, and that was also an obvious goal of Apple that didn't want to compete with Amazon on 999 it wanted all of its ebook sales to make a, a, at least a small profit uh, to prove its conspiracy Ryan argued that the government actually had a very low burden it only had to show that the, the defendants had accepted an invitation he argued and that invitation was hey I'll fix your Amazon problem you join me in moving the industry to agency and then you know we'll negotiate your prices after that, um, and key to all of this, of course, was the most favored nations clause. You know, there's been a lot written about that, um, yes. and you know, we should probably get into that. <laughs>
0: yeah, instead. no, absolutely, because I mean, it, this was a key element, and that is presented one way by Apple, but you know, it, as, in terms of how the MFN actually works, uh, it does make it difficult for a publisher to keep their other retail partners. On the wholesale model, if they switch to, an MFN, it switch to an agency model under MFN, maybe
1: you can outline the, the, the details of that. That's right. This is what Steve Jobs in his biography called his Aikido move. Yes. <laughs> uh, basically, he had argued that, hey, you know, Amazon has screwed it up. They had this great market, but they were charging $9.99 for books, and publishers hated that. So they were going to withhold books. And then Amazon, Apple came riding into the picture and said, hey, we'll take you all to agency, but we want a clause that says uh, we get to sell the books as low as anybody else. That was the MFN, the Most Favored Nations Clause. And basically, it was a contractual term that gave Apple the right to sell uh, books in its store. For whatever the lowest price was out there amongst uh, the the any other retailer. Now, at trial, Apple had said, "Hey, this this is evidence that we wanted low prices because we know that publishers wanted to raise prices higher than the fourteen ninety nine we ended up setting as our highest tier. So we we were the good actors here. But the, the M F N also served another purpose. The DOJ argued and which Coat readily bought, and that's that it was going to force. Publishers to move everybody to the all agency model. Now you remember when the initial uh, yes. publisher proposals went out from mm-hmm. Apple, they requested that they demanded that all the publishers move all their retailers to the agency model. Yeah,
0: this was and a pre- this was a key portion of their initial. Presentation to the publishers, right?
1: That's right. This was yeah. this was the crux. This was how everything was going to work for Apple. But they also realized that there was no way they were going to be able to enforce that, yeah. because even if they did put a, a a clause in the contract saying that you have to move uh, everybody to retailers, they couldn't force their competitors to sign a deal that went to agency model. And what was their re, you know what were they going to do if that was the case? Were they going to sue publishers because Barnes and Noble didn't sign an agency deal? I mean, it just wasn't workable. So the MFN was designed to actually make that happen. Now, the government says that the MFN was always designed as, as a commitment mechanism to get everybody to move to the agency model. In his, in his closing arguments, uh, Mark Ryan for the DOJ argued that you know Apple actually never had any intention of including a contract provision that would mandate agency, and they'd always been working on uh, the MFN, because an, an all-agency clause would have been high risk. That would have been a red flag to antitrust investigators. Mm-hmm. So instead, Apple just floated the idea of all-agency to publishers, and then Use the MFN to actually achieve that goal. And Ryan noted that Apple counsel Kevin Saul had actually begun work on the MFN weeks before Q testified. That he said he had this idea of including an MFN, uh, and that there was no evidence that Apple had ever begun working on an all agency clause and once the MFN was accepted, there was no question what was going to happen. The publishers are going to have to move all their retailers rather than risk having not only books sold at nine ninety nine but having Apple pay only seventy percent of that nine hundred ninety price, as one expert explained. The uh, MFN uh, forced agency model on other retailers by adding the threat of economic injury to the insult of 9 And it's also telling Ryan Nota that Apple admitted that it doesn't enforce the MFN. So yes. that's consistent mm-hmm. with the government's belief that once it achieved its objective of getting everybody onto agency, Apple no longer really cared about it.
0: Um, let's talk a little bit about the uh, individual negotiations between Apple and each publisher, I mean Apple contended that uh, that these were um, adversarial uh, aggressive uh, energetic uh, negotiations, and that, that that they were never at any time sure that they were going to you know sign anyone um, and yet uh, the government seemed to trot out a lot of evidence that indeed um, the publishers were in communication with each other at all times, and in many ways, Apple was in communication with the publishers um, at every step during the negotiations.
1: You know, that's absolutely true, and I, I think that the government... Um, I, actually, I think you know that Apple is right. The, the negotiations were individual, mm-hmm. and their negotiations were tense, and they could have fallen apart at any time. However... There was always a common goal in mind. And his closing arguments, uh, you know, Mark Ryan also poked holes in Apple's argument that these individual contentious negotiations were evidence that there was no conspiracy. You know, it's not surprising that there would be difficult negotiations about the details of the conspiracy, he argued. The key was that they all still had the clear objective in mind. Sure, you know, they may have needed to hammer out a few of the details, but that's not a defense. You know, Venezuela and Saudi Arabia often disagree about the the price of a barrel. Of oil, he said. But no one would argue that they have a cartel. You know, obviously they do have a cartel. Um, you know, Judge Cote also wondered about that too. You know, she was like, she asked if, if uh, you know, could the promise of higher prices just have been a sales pitch? Um, did it really need to be read as evidence of a conspiracy? But the problem with that, Ryan said, was that you know this fear of Amazon retaliation was so great that the only way they were all going to move together. If they were all going to move to agency was to get them to move together, and on that score, Apple admitted that it served as an information conduit. It let the other publishers mm-hmm. know that yes, uh, here's the status of other people's negotiations. Even though it wasn't specific about who would sign deals or what terms other people were negotiating about, it did let people know that hey, so and so was in the game, and so or so and so has signed a deal, um, and that was enough. The government argued to uh, establish the conspiracy.
0: Well, there's, uh, uh, there's, a, uh, there's a big sort of question mark you know, floating through this whole area here. I mean, Apple is theoretically negotiating with the big six, but really they were only dealing with five of the publishers. What was happening with Random House, the world's biggest publisher at the time, and what were some of the other issues around Random House uh, and agency or non-agency?
1: You know, Random House said no. Random House Mm -hmm. was involved in the negotiations. They were very interested in having an Apple iBook store, and they definitely wanted another player in the industry. But, you know, at the end of the day it was a very complex deal for them and there was a lot on the line and first and foremost it didn't make economic sense you know they were going to take less money for each of their ebooks and if they were going to move apple onto this new model they realized right away they were going to have to move all of their retailers onto agency and they simply were not prepared to do it so marcus dola at one point just Said no. He was, you know, not prepared to undertake such a a massive change in business, um, and based entirely on the economics of the deal. I believe. I don't think there was any other reason. Uh, He said no. I mean, I would love to have heard Dola on the stand because clearly,
0: um, (laughs) unfortunately, he did did not get called. but yes, I think we would all love to have heard him talking um, uh, yeah, on these issues. The question yeah.
1: I would have wanted to know was, you know, did he sense that there was something not quite right here? Because yes. mm-hmm. his, clearly, Madeline McIntosh, who is now the COO, who also did not testify, much to the consternation of Oren Snyder, Apple's yes. lead attorney. <laughs> yes, that was a moment during the trial. But go on. <laughs> you know, she seemed to know in some of her conversations that were entered into the record that you know this was maybe not quite right. That uh, all these publishers were talking together here, but we'll Never know if Amazon or excuse me if, if Random House felt that there was something uh, perhaps illegal or at least uh, threatening going on with uh, the, the the way the Apple deal was rolling forward
0: the, the government also uh, certainly on the day that I uh, was covering your trial, the government really kind of bore down on uh, evidence that it had that the uh, multiple publishers were actually putting quite a bit of pressure on Amazon, uh, on Random House. Over this question, including, um, I think, Eddie Q, making references uh, uh, to being in bed with Amazon and the like. Um, There was an interesting email from um, Madeline McIntosh to Doley about dealing with Apple's pressure
1: uh, on them to, to go agency. That's true. I remember that email. I I don't think Madeline McIntosh was uh, terribly thrilled to have been so so
0: accused. Uh, Not to mention, uh, I think it was uh, uh, emails from uh, Penguin and uh, Hachette uh, really sort of taking Random House to
1: task for not being kind of with us. Well, you really saw that, you know, in force after the iBookstore had launched with the five publishers in and Random House out. Uh And, you know, at one point, you know, uh, David Shanks, the CEO of Penguin, you know, fumed to Steve Riggio at Barnes & Noble that the Amazon homepage could be the Random House homepage. You know, he, you know, suggested that, you know, Amazon was really sort of, you know, sticking it to the rest of the publishers by, you know, promoting Random House books, which were still on wholesale. Um, And he also had, you know... Lunch with the Madeline Macintosh and and Marcus Dola, and he, you know the evidence showed that he was still trying to convince them that they had a responsibility uh, to the industry to you know to make the switch. Um, but you know what's interesting? They didn't actually. Random House finally made the switch just over a year later, a mm. year after the rest of the publishers did, and they did so after after Apple refused to sell their apps in the App Store. At that point, yes. it became clear to Random House that if they wanted to do any business with Apple, uh, they were going to need to get on board with this. And, you know, in 2011, they made the switch. And right after that, they had the biggest hit, you know, in recent memory with Fifty Shades of Grey, right, right. of which they sold 15 million ebooks. Mm. Now, if they had sold 15 million ebooks, under the wholesale model, how much more revenue would they have made uh, than you know, getting $4 less per book under the agency? So you know, the, the, the economic cost of the agency model, I think, was pretty apparent to Ramaz- Amazon – or yeah. excuse me, to Random House random. right off the bat.
0: Um, it, it was also pretty uh, apparent in, uh, in, in, in the evidence that the uh, government put forward that it was galling to Apple as well that Random House was not there. I mean, in fact, the government took the, uh, on multiple occasions, I think when uh, Keith Moore was testifying, as well as when Eddie Q was testifying, to kind of poke uh, the Apple cage a little bit with the notion that the iBook store was a failure
1: because and of Random House. This was one of the reasons why. Apple believed that not having the world's largest publisher with a great proportion of bestsellers in the Apple bookstore was holding it back from success. I think that's you know possibly part of it, but it's not the whole reason why the iBookstore hasn't done as well as uh, I think others have expected it would do.
0: Were there some signature moments of tech Testimony uh, during your time covering the trial—anything you want to uh, like, sort of hone in. Um, I mean, I thought some of the testimony about uh, really referring to Steve Jobs
1: was very interesting, but there were certainly other moments as well. You know, overall, I would say this, and, and Code, Judge Code even noted, noted this in her decision that the a lot of the testimony that we heard at the trial was simply not reliable. Um, and you know, you were there for a lot of it, so I'll ask you about some of your key moments. But to me, the key moment that I Noticed that, like, you know, this guy's going nowhere. Was in Eddie Q's testimony when he stuck to his guns. There were two moments with Eddie Q, actually, or with Apple, I should say. One was Eddie Q sticking to his guns that he had no idea. That uh, John Sargent was going to be in Seattle on january twenty eighth uh, handing an ultimatum to Amazon <laughs> when there were emails entered into evidence where john sargent told him hey i won 't be at the I- iPad launch because i 'm going to be in Seattle um, and you know Judge Cote even noticed that, noted this in a footnote she said Q 's testimony was not credible, um, and that really affected the case because Apple needed its witnesses here. The, given the mountain of evidence, the mountain of document and the amount of circumstantial evidence, Apple needed the witnesses to be strong on the stand. And instead, Judge Cote noted both, you know, Carolyn Reedy and John Sargent and Eddie Q uh, were simply not credible. You know, the other moment for me was when... Uh, uh, Rob McDonald, who directs the iBook oh, yeah. store, was mm-hmm. on the stand. And, and he basically stuck to his guns that Apple had changed the eBook environment. That Apple's iBooks, uh, iAuthor app, excuse me, had changed the eBook environment. Right. Even <laughs> when presented <laughs> with numbers that showed that, you know, just a tiny, tiny percentage of Apple's iBook store, which had a small percentage of the overall book market, uh, you know, were actually authored made with, available with iBooks, he stuck to his guns and said, yes, I believe that this has been a game changing thing. Uh, and you could just see, like, Judge Coat not buying it. So, you know, there was a lot of cre- credibility issues with, uh, with some of the testimony, in addition to the fact that most of the executives from the publishers couldn't remember any of the details. <laughs> yes. You know, I, yeah, I don't that, recall, or could you repeat the question? Yeah. Were the most common things we heard, right? Oh, without a doubt. Um,
0: and and, and oh, I would also add once again, there was also dis- uh, this discrepancy between their testimony very often and the evidence. Uh, time and time again, um, uh, uh, many of the publishers would make an assertion, and the government would almost immediately present at least one, if not multiple, pieces of evidence that completely contradicted it. I mean, in the most blatant way. Um, that was consistent throughout the trial and throughout their testimony. Um, you know, for myself, I mean, there was probably three or four big m- moments. I mean. Um, when uh, the uh, Penguin CEO David Shanks was on the uh, on the stand, I mean, he it, he in some ways I found be the most credible. He essentially pretty much admitted most of the things that the government charged. He, including um, really, saying blatantly that without a doubt they were going to move all of their retailers to a- agency. He, he said we we worked all the numbers. There was no way that it would work otherwise, and we didn't want Barnes and Noble and other retailers. Also, you know, essentially matching prices. Um, Carolyn Reedy was probably uh, the most in your face uh, of the CEOs. Uh, she was defiant, and in many ways, uh, uh, I think Coke pointed this out in her uh, her decision. Uh, she was uh, quibbling about the meanings of words. Um, uh, there was much evidence that uh, she was in communication with other publishers, uh, with Apple. Uh, that she even <laughs> went in front of the, uh, the the Association of Author Representatives, the uh, the Association of, uh, of of Literary Agents, to talk about the differences between the wholesale model and the agency model while she was negotiating, uh, and uh, she seemed to think that there was nothing wrong with that. Uh, it, it went on and on like that. I mean, I thought one moment for me also was David Young of Hachette, uh, you know, was on the on the stand basically saying that. Uh, or I should put it this way: Coat really focused in on his testimony, where and because there was much testimony about how unprofitable it was to move to the agency model for publishers. And she's pointedly asked him, "Asked him, so, uh, Mr. Young, you you moved to agency models not to increase your profits, but to quote protect the book industry?" And he eagerly said, "Yes." I found I thought to me that was one of the signature moments uh, of the uh, of the trial, and and it seemed to me that code was making a point there.
1: You know, it's interesting because we talked a lot about this too, and I, I think that you know protecting the industry was certainly what publishers had sure. in mind. And I don't believe that to this day that they believe that they did anything wrong. And you know what, I'm not sure that they did. You know, I don't know antitrust law well enough. Uh, obviously, Coat seems like this is de- was definitely outside the scope of the law. But they, you know, it, it's interesting to me. When we think about price fixing, we always seem to have this image, and we talked about this of cigar chomping industrialists in a back room you know carving up the market for one another but you know that 's really not what went on here. You know what happened here was much more subtle and much more ingenious i 'll say mm-hmm. um, and it really all of these people definitely believe that they were acting in the best interests of the book industry and the publishing industry, um, but it turns out they may have indeed Clearly, according to Judge Cope, broken the law. Yeah.
0: So, so here we are. Uh, the the, the ver- you know the uh, ruling has been been rendered. No doubt, uh, Apple will uh, appeal. Um, what can Apple expect from an appeal?
1: I think Apple can expect uh, a, t- a tough road on appeal. You know, I've talked with a, a few lawyers about this, and you know, it's going to be uh, the main thing that they're going to. They should try to go is to get this to have this case looked at to overturn Coe's decision to look at this not as a, as a per se uh, mm-hmm. violation, but that's going to be very difficult. You know, and on the fact findings that Judge Code has in here, overturning those in any case is difficult, and these are so well documented. You know, that's going to be tough too. I think. Apple maybe has one opening, and that's to argue that it didn't get a fair hearing. You know, you'll remember that she had, Judge Cote had issued a tentative view at the beginning of the case that she believed the government was going to prove its case. And in the opening arguments, that became an issue. Warren Snyder had raised it, and Judge Cote assured him that Apple would get uh, a fair hearing. Um, but I think that is the one place where Apple might be able to gain some traction on its appeal. Because you'll remember in the other major antitrust case uh, of, of our time, which was the Microsoft case, that actually was the case. Because one, the judge in that case, I believe, had given an embargoed interview yeah,
0: before yeah, talk the, to the, the journalist outside of the That's court. right. Yeah.
1: And you know the the court used that as a, as a sign of bias and you know it still held Microsoft liable but it reversed the the mm-hmm. order that you know ordered uh, Microsoft to be broken up. So I think that's the one thing you're going to see Apple really argue on appeal here is that uh, it didn't get a fair hearing.
0: Hmm. Um, but beyond you know Apple's uh, uh, appeal what does this decision mean for book consumers who in, in some ways actually have already been living under the, uh, the aftermath of what the, the settlement and this decision will mean for book, con- for book consumers. Uh, and then maybe what does it mean for book publishers?
1: Or well, you know, in the short for, term, yeah. it, it doesn't mean much in the short mm-hmm. term because you know, with the, the publisher settlements, um, we're now well into the agency era. Now, in 2014, the uh, DOJ sanctions that allow uh, retailers to discount off of the prices that publishers sell, um, among other things. Those sanctions are going to end in 2014.
0: Because they're kind of operating under a modified agency.
1: It's sort of a modified agency. I heard one retailer
0: describe it as uh, agency two or something. Yeah,
1: Yeah. that's Uh, right. Because you can Um, discount and like... That's right. You can still discount off of the stuff, but that's going to end. Eventually, when the government sanctions end, that's going to be over. And what happens after that? You know, anybody is anybody's guess. I mean, my guess is that you're going to see ebook prices start to rise. Yeah. But also, what I think you're going to see is some very contentious. Negotiations happening between all the different ebook retailers. For one thing, there's going to be no MFNs for five years, and I'd be surprised if the MFNs ever made a comeback yeah. uh, in the ebook world. So you could see different prices at different retailers. You might see a little more price competition, uh, but you're probably going to see higher prices.
0: I mean, one thing that I think maybe we ought to reiterate here is that it, you know the MFNs and the agency model—they're uh, they're not illegal in any way. This was not the case, uh, that was not the finding here, that, the, that the, it's perfectly legal to use the agency model and to use MFNs. It's just the, the fact pattern of this particular case
1: that's exactly right, and that's a very important point very important point to make here that uh the, whatever the scheme whether it was a scheme, whatever that scheme was uh that moved the industry to the agency model, it succeeded that 's now where we are when it comes to ebooks and eventually it'll be you know with the sanctions will come off um, so we are in an agency era what this what this case did and what this decision did was simply sanction uh each of the publishers and Apple for how we got to the agency model, but it does not change the fact that this is where we are.
0: Well, I think uh, we've kind of covered the, uh, the whole arc uh, of this case, so uh, this might be as good a time as any place to wrap up.
1: Well, it was a pleasure covering it with you, Kelvin, and nice to have a chat with you.
0: Yeah, well, I learned a lot about eBook and the law <laughs> during this thing. Thanks much.